welcome back to the DC Wash Up. It's season two, episode number, Brooke. Oh no. Ah, <laughs> uh, five? Yes, correct. Yeah. Episode five <laughs> of Trump Landia. I'm producer Roscoe Whalen. That was producer Brooke Wiley. Hello. We also have North America Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel. Greetings. And uh, what do we call you? Interim North America correspondent Greg Jennett? Work experience. Greg. <laughs> the work experience kid is also in. Uh, the chair today. So um, Zoe and I are back from a long weekend off. So how are you feeling? Are you feeling relaxed, ready to go again, Zoe? Like it needed to be longer. (laughs) Four days (laughs) is not enough. (laughs) Well, let's get down straight to it today. Um, We're going to rewind back to last week. And we were talking last week, actually, about the crazy press conference between Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu and things couldn't get crazier. Well, how wrong were we? (laughs) Thursday last week, Donald Trump finally faced the media. Zoe, you were there. How'd that go? I think he just enjoyed that Netanyahu press conference so much that he thought, let's do another one, basically. Um, And we didn't get much notice. I was sitting at my desk at, what, 11 in the morning when there was a flash saying he would be doing a press conference at noon. So it was just a mad scramble to get down to the White House and in place. In the end, it ran a little late, so it started at half past 12. But journalists were just sort of coming from everywhere to get through the White House <laughs> gates into the East Room in time for this somewhat impromptu event. Apparently, so the story goes, he went in and said to some of his senior aides that morning, let's hold a press conference today. And <laughs> according to those aides, it was 100% his idea. And he then fronted the press for about an hour and a half, taking all sorts of questions from all sorts of different media organisations. It was really quite unusual. I think it was 77 minutes and 17 questions from journalists. I like Stephen Colbert's description. It wasn't a press conference. It was a stress conference. Like this, <laughs> this angst-ridden stream of consciousness. But his motivation was pretty clear. He was going to clear the air. He's going to take it all on and give back as good... But the curious thing was how much he seemed to enjoy it. He just loves the kind of pugilism of politics, come on, I'll have you sort of thing. And uh, the media, it gave them something to talk about for, what, five days I saw that thing digested (laughs) and re-explained and psychoanalyzed. Given how much he seemed to enjoy it, Greg, are you surprised he doesn't, doesn't do it more often? So this goes to that thing about whether he's talking through the media or over the media. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is a tactic he employs throughout. He'll sit there and use the media with its multi-million dollar distribution and broadcasting transmission equipment, but he wants to talk straight to the people. And we can talk later about other ways that he's exercised that this week. But um, I think you'll, I reckon it's going to be a fixture myself. That's a punt. Yeah, as he was walking off the stage, there were a number of journalists who shouted out, are we doing this every week? Can we do it again next week? (laughs) They obviously enjoyed it as much as he did. So it will be interesting to see whether he starts scheduling them. And as much as it was entertaining, Zoe, did we learn (laughs) anything from this as well? Um, Well, do you know what? I mean, it it reminded me of a Donald Trump campaign rally, really. Uh, I know that there was all sorts of gasps of amazement at the style of the press conference from around the world, but I didn't find it particularly unusual at all just because (laughs) I've seen him behave like that a thousand times, uh, albeit in different forums. Um, He, I guess, 
as Greg said, directly addressed some of his concerns about the media to the media and to specific journalists and to specific organisations. CNN, for example, um, sort of took it in the neck pretty directly and that's an organisation that he's been having a spray out at for quite some time. Um, he, he did, though, seem to really enjoy it and, again, although... It's been interpreted as Donald Trump sort of railing against the media. And he said in the press conference, oh, I know it'll be all over the media tomorrow. That Donald Trump was, you know, <laughs> having a spray at the media, which is exactly what happened. Um, but it didn't really feel like that for most of the press conference. There was a couple of times when it got a bit angsty between him and particular journalists. But by and large, it was quite good-natured vibe and he's, he did seem to be quite enjoying it. And even those journalists like Jim Acosta from CNN who he was taking on sort of did it in quite a, a teasing way, sort of saying, oh, you're not so bad, Jim, much as I hate CNN. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's not you kind of thing. There so must be a bit of a disconnect between the practitioners, the day-to-day -day White House journalists who are just in there, that's what they do, right, and the production teams back on base because the correspondents probably saw it as Zoe described it, part of the deal. But some of the instant takeout and analysis that went on CNN and some of the other networks I was watching was pure media indignation. The only reason they wanted to talk about that press conference was to look at the attacks on the media. Forget some of the more substantive news angles that you might have derived from the media conference. That was the prism through which they analysed it. And, of course, it got a whole lot worse for them when 24 or so hours later out came that tweet about enemy of the people. That was the straw that mm. broke the camel's back which, for a lot of them. Which kind of seemed to be... Uh, his reaction to the reaction to the press conference in the sense that, as I've just said, he he was... His perception of himself, I think, is quite different to other people's perception of him. And he probably thought that he was being a sort of friendly president having this very long press conference with the media saying at one point, oh, should we keep going with this? How long? How many more questions should I take? Ha, ha, ha. We'll do another five minutes. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, it's still going. Um, but then the widespread analysis of it was, you know, once again, the president behaving in this sort of unpredictable, bizarre almost fashion, holding this press conference, taking various journalists to task, you know, in a kind of unpresidential way. And then therefore his response to it once again was, oh, well, you all hate me, so I hate you back. Mm. <laughs> it almost felt like a bit of a family mediation session. <laughs> like it was sort of the way everyone kind of just got... What was really worrying them off their chest, at one point, Jim Acosta, as we've been talking about, he got up and said, um, I just want to make it clear that we don't hate you, Mr. Right. President. The fact that you even have to have that conversation in a huge press conference like that is kind of startling. Yes. Well, and that was in response to Donald Trump saying, well, my problem is that some media organisations are effectively peddling hatred towards me. And, and Jim Acosta, as you said, is saying, we don't hate we you. Don't hate I, you. I, just to be clear, we don't hate you. And then he's saying, well, I'm not saying you hate me, but your organisation hates me kind of thing. And then he let everyone know, not for the first time, I actually am a really nice person. <laughs> and I'm good for your ratings. <laughs> there were some really funny <laughs> yeah. moments. There was a, another um, moment where he was, um, when the reporter responded, you are the president to the fact that he said that he had achieved this huge majority in the Electoral College and the reporter said, well, 
in fact, Barack Obama got more than you? And he said, oh, no, I mean Republican. He said, well, in fact, George W. Bush got more than you. And he said, well, that's what I've been told. But anyway, don't you think I did really well? And the reporter said, you're the president. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole room just exploded in laughter. So it it was, but that got a lot of coverage because he was caught out in a factual error. Um, as well as that being a, a moment of levity, if you like. Greg, was there some of that media playing into the hands of Trump in the sense you said the key takeaways, it seemed, was a lot of the networks went to how he treats the media as opposed to looking for some of those more news angle takeaways? Yeah, I think there were other angles. See, I seem to come at this inevitably because I'm new in town from how would we treat something like that in Australia? And I do think attacks on the media, we would tend to step back from that. It's just not where we want to go. We tend to take as first principle, Australians want to know what their leader said today of substance, not how much of a fight is he in with with establishment media organisations. So, yeah, there is that. There was other news in there. But um, I suppose the overall takeout for me is it said to me that this is, for reasons that Zoe outlined, he called it at short notice, this is Donald Trump's White House. So a lot of people are wrestling with who's the puppeteer here? Is it Steve Bannon? Uh, Who's actually calling the shots? I reckon the execution and calling of that media conference was pure Donald Trump. And that's, I don't know, in some ways reassuring, I suppose, that the elected guy is the guy who's calling the shots. And obviously Donald Trump enjoyed that. He's doing a few things that he tends to enjoy. One of those was going down to Florida over the weekend to hold a rally with his people. And his money too, by the way. That was a question put. Who's paying for this? So there would have been taxpayer costs getting the president there, but this was leftover campaign funds from last year used to do a campaign rally. So what was going through everyone's mind who watched that? Oh, my goodness, here we go again. Mm. It was unrelenting and it was Donald Trump. Vintage Donald Trump. And this isn't the first time he's done this. So you obviously covered when he first uh, won the election, but was the president-elect, and he was in Cincinnati, and he was addressing his people. Is this just something that we're going to expect to see Donald Trump doing from here on out for the next four years? Yeah. (laughs) He loves it. He loves it. And and I think it's um, also, in a way, for him to balance out this hatred that he feels he's getting in the mainstream media and the fact that, it, well, seemingly, and, you know, I'm not inside his head, so I don't know, seemingly that erodes his confidence in, in himself. So a way to rebuild that confidence is to go out to his faithful and have them, you know, in their thousands cheering everything he says and telling him how awesome Chanting he is. His name. Um, yeah. And we know that he fed off that during the campaign. Uh, the, the rallies were enormous at times in the tens of thousands of people and there was a lot of love in the room for then Mr Trump now, and now President Trump. And so I, my feeling is that every time he feels a bit wobbly, uh, when he needs that sort of confidence boost or a bit of sort of support in the literal sense, that's where he's going to find it. Sort of affirming sensation that he's after. But here's one other difference between the pre-November campaigning Donald Trump and the post-January one. Uh, Back then, he had campaign volunteers, interns, supporters, advisors paid for by the campaign. Now, they're working on, they haven't fully filled, 5,000 political appointees and a very large bureaucracy behind him. And still, still, out of all of those people, they couldn't get someone to fact-check 
what's happening in Sweden. <laughs> it was a celebrated gaffe, though. I mean, how does, how does something like that get through? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know because you, you've, got, you've got to wonder whether that was written down anywhere or whether it just came straight out of his head. Therefore, there's not a lot of space for prior fact-checking, I guess, and this is a trap that he's going to continually fall into. Um, I mean, getting back to the press conference and, and that little exchange with the reporter about the Electoral College, what I thought was telling in that was, although we've been over and over that particular issue ad nauseum, when you know, various media organisations have reported the inaccuracy in the statement that he's, he maxed out the Electoral College, he had in his head that someone had told him that that's what had happened. And he never fact-checked that. He's just taken that as given. And the that resonated with me in relation to the Sweden thing as well, that he got in his head that that's what had happened, but he doesn't necessarily fact-check himself, and that's when those pitfalls occur. Which rather undermines the attacks on fake news when you're <laughs> perpetuating it yourself. Yeah. So, and these supporters, obviously, one month into the Trump administration, Greg, they seem pretty exuberant when you were covering this rally on Saturday from the Bureau. As nearly as I can tell, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a small number of protesters out on the approach road. Uh, there was Jean Huber, the black-shirted, a t-shirted fellow who was invited onto the stage, mm. I think much to the disappointment of the secret service. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's like time stood still for those people. They were still back in October, November. And I guess if it's working for him, apart from the psychological edge that Zoe was talking about that it gives him personally, if this is him able to communicate directly to his people in those all-important states... I guess you can see why he would continue to do it. And, Brooke, what about the criticism of Donald Trump, who is a month into the job and he's out holding rallies? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it sort of draws attention to this question of whether he can be a president for all Americans or whether he is only able to communicate with those who are sympathetic to his his mission. Uh, but certainly, yeah, some of the criticisms about him spending an extraordinary amount of taxpayer dollars to have weekends away in Mar-a-Lago and to essentially, you know, um, hide out in Florida where he feels that he is welcome and safe in this space that's not full of criticism like we've seen in Washington. I, I think there has that has sort of been discussed at length uh, within, within Washington, yes. You wonder if that's not going to be a time bomb. It would be in Australia, to go back to that old one, um, you know, someone who continually, who had resources at their disposal, let's say a wealthy prime minister, uh, <laughs> and who continued to rack up what was seen as extravagant costs, that would come and bite you big time at some point in the future. I don't know whether that happens in the American context, but mm. it would become a story in time. Like Kevin 747? Yeah, or... Malcolm, or he of <laughs> the first prime minister who uh, who doesn't live in Kirribilli when in Sydney, yeah. <laughs> and I mean that's the thing. It's not unusual to have, for example, Shinzo Abe down in Mar-a-Lago. Barack Obama would host foreign guests all the mm -hmm. time and take them away. George Bush took them to the ranch and they would mm -hmm. hang Camp out David, there. Camp yeah. David. So what's different about Donald Trump and the way he's doing things? Well, he's not always taking someone with him. He's just taking his family in many cases. Um, and it's a huge security operation to have the president so frequently 
well, in a private residence, in a sense. I mean, it's a, it's a different sort of setup. It's not, it doesn't have the same built-in security uh, protections of something like Camp David, which is specially designed for presidents and visiting leaders to stay. And so what about the ability to access the president when he's at Mar-a-Lago? There were reports that you could pay $200,000 now mm-hmm. and you can have a direct ear of the president. Well, yeah. I mean, the report is that membership of Mar-a-Lago was 100000 and it's now $200,000. And there are all sorts of obvious questions to be asked around that. Um, and yes, those in terms of a profit-making um, vehicle I'm getting at, but those people, therefore, who can access him have to have that money in the first place. So that's obviously only a very particular portion of the community. Um, one of his media people said on the weekend, oh, well, it's a it's a great place for members of the public to be able to access the president. And it's kind of raises the response of, well, you're hardly an average member of the public if you're paying 200K to be a member of right. this club. Um, but that said, I mean, okay, let's take the glass half full perspective on this for a moment. It, it's a different style. Uh, it's a different environment. It's something that's more relaxed and casual. It's not having you know your world leader or your head of general motors or whoever it might happen to be at the white house for a formal meeting and with the pool spray and all the rest of it it's somewhere where you can perhaps sit around and have a lunch or dinner together play a round of golf certainly president obama was you know well known for golfing with various people and you know this is a way of having a different type of conversation i think we know that donald trump is a very different kind of president and it's pretty clear that he never really wanted to live in DC or or the White House and his family's not there with him yet. Um, So all of those things perhaps are combining um, to lead to the fact that he's going to Mar-a-Lago every weekend. And as Brooke said, there are lots of pitfalls in that, but maybe there are some upsides too in the style of conversation that you can have. Yeah, that stuff is is powerful in international top-level diplomacy. The the quiet, casual conversation, history records how many times major decisions were made in those environments as opposed to the formal with officials around. That's, yeah, it could be a good point. I wonder if there's a transparency question about that, though. In this one, you know, visitors go to the White House, there are records, people know who's coming in and out. It's very well documented. At Mar-a-Lago, we don't have membership lists. We don't know who has access to him and what they're talking to him about. I'm I'm not sure whether it's an issue or not, but I, I do wonder if there is a transparency question to be asked about uh, who is able to, you know, speak to him and advise him and ask things of him uh, in a way that can't be sort of reported on or monitored. We do know they have a skiff there. We just don't know what a skiff is. <laughs> Other than a small boat. <laughs> There was a great. I really got to get on that. (laughs) Definition of skiff. (laughs) The Washington Washington Post tried to break down what Donald Trump has been doing since he became president, and they broke down the 744 hours of him as president this week. 25 hours spent golfing, 21 hours on foreign relations, 13 hours tweeting, (laughs) and six hours on intel briefings. Now, my first question is. 
do you really think he spent 13 hours tweeting? I mean, it's only 140 characters. He does tweet a lot. That's an awfully long time. No, I think that's spot on. And for all the ones that are, like, deleted with spelling errors and grammatical mistakes and then retweeted, you know, that's sort of twice the time. That's true. The How other... many hours on Intel briefings did you say? Six. That's oh, <laughs> very efficient when it comes to Intel, according to the Washington Post. You, you, you've just raised something for me, though, which is does he only spend time writing tweets or, or does he actually read tweets? And if he's reading tweets, whose tweets is he actually reading? He's There's reading a whole... his mentions. <laughs> he's reading his tweets. He's, if he's reading his mentions, that could take at least oh 13 God. hours. <laughs> Definitely reading the mentions. <laughs> oh, I hope sure. he knows how to use block and mute. Yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about the Australian foreign minister who was in town, or is it just not that interesting? She's not getting invited to Mar-a-Lago. Greg, what's uh, what's Julie Bishop been up to? It was pretty workmanlike, wasn't it? Got the job done. I think made up for or put back on an even keel the things that didn't quite go so well in Malcolm Turnbull's first outing. She's a professional at this stuff. I think she wanted to make it low fuss. And it worked insofar as she got to talk to Mike Pence, Rex Tillerson. She put in her two bobs worth about the Middle East, uh, particularly the troop review, military review that's going on. So I think she would go away feeling it wasn't too flashy, but uh, we've even even the ship sort of thing. We're friends again, Australia and the United States, so we can rest easy. <laughs> and, and the other thing that's sort of interesting, but more to the point, brackets frustrating about that is that you you rarely, if ever, know what really happened in those sorts of meetings with the Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister, but even less so now, given that no one in the State Department seems to know what on earth is well, going on. Um, and in fact, you know, the broader coverage seems to indicate that many of the traditional parts of the State Department are literally being locked out of any sort of conversation about policy positions and much of it's being shunted back to the White House. So for someone like Julie Bishop, whose job it is to sustain that relationship, that makes things quite, I guess, different, maybe complicated and interesting going forward because her relationship with Rex Tillerson may prove very pivotal to Australia actually finding out what is going on in terms of the... uh, policy future of the Trump White House, given that many of those contacts that Australia would have previously accessed in the Department of State are n- not necessarily connected to the new I administration. I reckon she'd willingly indulge them a period, not a long period, but a period of time where it is in lockdown, all that information, than the alternative, which obviously happened to Malcolm Turnbull, which is the leak. So mm-hmm. let's assume that's possibly a temporary arrangement until relationships of trust are put in with state officials and the boundaries are all defined and they're not suspicious towards Tillerson and vice versa. Mm. Uh, Perhaps it goes back to situation normal on statecraft, but you're right, it would be a problem if that persisted for four years. Well, in the sense that uh, many of the top-level diplomats in the Department of State have been or are being purged. So rather than having professional diplomats at work, uh, you'll end up with a very different dynamic. And this is something that governments all around the world are currently navigating. Mm. And just as Greg was saying about this sort of question of trust, also how Australian officials, how much trust they can put in what they're hearing from Tillerson and from Mattis and from Pence, because from time to time the president really does go his own way, as we were talking about earlier. And so how much faith they can put in what they're told at these meetings, I think still is yet to sort of be figured out in some ways. And we will be here 
every step of the way trying to work out those differences between fact and fiction and hopefully we get them right. We'll, we will <laughs> never be get, wrong because we just adapt again the next week. <laughs> we'll always be on the side of right, don't worry. That's right. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you next week.